Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. Block Kansas City, how we doing tonight? Man, it is good to be back in the room with y'all. Uh, I've been gone the last two weeks on two different missions opportunities. I was in Mexico and then I was in Springfield. Uh, I have missed being in this room. I really, I hope you guys know that this is a special place to be, not just for me, but every single one of you all make this an incredibly uh, great way to spend your Thursday nights. So if you're new to the block, maybe someone at your office or someone where you work, they invited you to come. We are so glad that you're here. Welcome to the block, Kansas City. Uh, We love that you're with us tonight. My name is Nick Swearingen. I am one of the pastors here at Lenexa Baptist Church. I'm one of the directors of the Block KC. And we are going to be continuing, like Grant said, in our series on sin. But before we get to tonight's topic of pride, I want to tell you all a quick story about a startup and a corporation. Okay, a startup and a corporation. Rewind the tapes back with me to September of 2000. Don't raise your hand if you were alive or not. I don't want to know. Um... (laughs) There was a corporation, which I won't mention for now, absolutely crushing it in its industry. Absolutely crushing it. It was worth billions of dollars. It had 9,000 storefront locations. 9,000 storefront locations. This company was the leader in its field. And you contrast this with this startup. It was only an online business. Only an online business. They had no storefront, no property that they owned. And they were about to lose the last $50 million of their investment capital. A tale of two cities, really. And they were in the same industry. And so this startup reached out to this corporation uh, and they said, hey, would you meet with us? We want to pitch the idea of you buying us and we would just become the online portion of your company. And they asked this for months. They continued to reach out to this corporation. And the three execs of this startup, they were at their first ever company retreat in rural California, and they get an email at 11.30 p.m. The corporation wants to meet, which seems great, right? Except for they said, hey, we want you to meet us tomorrow morning at 11.30 a.m. in Dallas, Texas. Who schedules a meeting 12 hours halfway across the country? Like, it's clear that this corporation does not think very highly of this startup. And they debate whether or not they should even go. Uh, They end up chartering a plane for $20,000 and have to leave at 5 a.m. just to make it to this meeting. But they make it, right? They make it, and they get to this big corporate headquarters, lots of glass, lots of steel, very high-powered. And they sit down for the 11.30 a.m. meeting on time, which is incredible. And the startup, they pitch this idea of how they want to become the corporation's online presence. And the corporation's CEO looks them all in the eye and says the online business hysteria is completely overblown. Online business models are not sustainable. Online business models will never make money. After some arguments between the two groups, uh, finally the CEO just kind of shuts it all down and says, guys, 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 how much would it take for us to buy you? What kind of numbers are we talking And the startups, they all look at each other and they say, $50 million. The CEO fights back laughter and immediately dismisses them from his office. And the team leaves 
feeling very, very dejected, as you can imagine. Ten years later, that big corporation filed for bankruptcy with a billion dollars in debt, and that startup is now worth $187 billion. Those companies are Blockbuster and Netflix. Netflix had the opportunity to be sold to Blockbuster for $50 million, which is now valued at $187 billion. And the CEO said, no, there's no way it'll ever make any money. You don't know what you're talking about. This CEO, Blockbuster, leader in their field, highly successful, they squandered to make a business opportunity, not only to save the future of their company, but probably to make one of the business or the best business deals of the century because of one main reason, pride. Pride always goes before the fall. And tonight we're going to be talking about pride versus humility. And pride, as we will learn, is one of the most destructive sins that we as young professionals can allow to continue in our lives. Because make no mistake, pride will always cost you more than you're willing to pay. And when it comes time to pay, it will almost always be a surprise. Because you never expect when you're going to fall. Pride is, is such a huge contributing factor to failed relationships, failed jobs, failed friendships, even failed churches. On the flip side, I think we all know the value of humility. Humility is one of the most critical character traits. If you're in the room tonight and you are a follower of Jesus or not, humility regardless is one of the most crucial character traits that you could ever develop. As a professional, as a friend, as a family member, as a future or current spouse, and specifically as we're talking about in our context as followers of Jesus. Because humility lets us see God for who he is. It lets us see ourselves for who we are. But pride is deceitful, right? Pride blinds us, and we're not able to see what's actually happening in our own lives. Thankfully, the God of the Bible gives us great instruction on how to fight pride and how to pursue humility in his word. So tonight we're going to be studying from 1 Samuel 18, and we'll be contrasting pride versus humility and learning what they look like and how do we pursue a life of humility. And my hope is that each one of us would not only see the danger of pride, but that we would just also see the beauty of living a humble life focused on God. Bow your heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we need you tonight. God, we have nothing besides you. God, I, none of my words are going to matter if it's not for your power and your word. And God, I just pray, would you, through your spirit, enable each one of us to, God, humbly consider where we're at in this area of our lives. God, would you allow us to humbly, before the fall is coming, God, would we be able to see any areas of pride in our life that we would begin to root it out through the help of your word and your spirit? God, would you allow us to celebrate ways that you've worked in our lives up until this point? And God, would we just be more transfixed on who you are, on the greatness of your character, and on what you want to do in our lives? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, if you've got a copy of God's word, open up to 1 Samuel 17, verse 55. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have some verses right up on the screen. Before you leave, stop by the Connect Center. We'd love to get you a Bible before you go. And we're going to be examining of a story of King Saul and King David, who are the first and second kings of Israel, respectively. Now, for context for this passage and for these two characters, for those of you who aren't familiar or need a refresher, King Saul has been chosen by God to rule over the nation of Israel and fight their battles as their king, to lead the charge of the army. However, Saul disobeys God, mostly because of pride. And so God said Saul is going to lose his kingdom. And Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, who's the prince, he is not going to be king one day. 
And at the same time, God chooses a young shepherd boy. He's the youngest in his family, the youngest brother. He's about 10 to 15 years old. His name's David, and God secretly anoints him and chooses him to be the future king over Israel. It says that David was a man after God's own heart, which means he cares about the things that, God's care, that God cares about, and this is why God chooses him. Several years later, there is a famous battle where Saul is terrified to fight the Philistine army and their hero, the giant Goliath. Uh, you probably have heard the story of David and Goliath. David is about 17 years old, and he goes out with a sling, some stones, a lot of trust in God, and David kills this giant Goliath, this incredible warrior with just one rock. Takes him out. He takes Goliath's sword. He chops off Goliath's head, which is incredibly metal. Picks up his head and carries it back with him to Saul's tent. And that's where we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 17.55. So imagine David, young shepherd boy, 17-year-old, holding a giant's head, walking into the presence of a king. Right. A fun image, right, to picture there. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. Now, this should give us an indicator, Saul's attitude towards other people. Why? Earlier in this chapter, we learned that David has been serving King Saul for at least a year. He's been King Saul's personal musician. He has sat in the same room as Saul for at least a year's period of time. And in fact, we learned Saul has even personally corresponded with David's father, Jesse, when he asked and requested David to come serve in Saul's presence. And so you get this picture. Saul doesn't really care about the lives of people around him. He doesn't really care about whose family that this, this boy comes from or their personal lives until they do something that's really helpful for him, like kill Goliath. 57 continues and says, As soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Well, think about that. David is the anointed king. He looks at Saul after defeating this great soldier Goliath's head in his hands and says, I'm just the son of your servant. That's all I am. 17 years old, he has the humility to be able to recognize that. I did not at 17. Talk about humility. I mean, that's an incredible picture. Chapter 18, verse 1 continues. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, the prince, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and also the armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." Guys, we get this picture, Saul won't even let David go home. Saul's like, hey, 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 you can't go back to your father. You're 17 years old. I need you to be the general of my army. I need you to do my job for me. You're better at it, so I'm just going to have you do it. Jonathan takes the entirely different approach. Jonathan doesn't seek to use David. Jonathan takes off his robe and his weapons. Weapons were rare that day in Israel, and he gives them to a shepherd boy. 
And it's a very kind act. It's, it's always good to give gifts, but it goes deeper than this. A lot of commentators and historians and theologians think that in Jonathan giving David his royal robes, he's saying, David, I recognize that you have the right to be king over me. Think about that. He's giving up willingly his right to be king of an entire country. He says, you take the place on the throne over me. I love you as my own soul. He looks at a man who's probably 10 years at least younger than himself and says, I consider you more important than me. And this leads us to point number one tonight. Pride considers others to be unimportant, while humility considers others as more important. What does this mean? Right? Saul does not really care about David's family. He doesn't really care where David comes from. All he sees is a means to an end. He's indifferent to this boy who's been serving him. He thinks, but man, now this boy could be kind of useful. I better keep him around. David, on the other hand, the anointed king sees God and sees King Saul as more important than himself. So he listens. He obeys. He listens to his father. He listens to Saul. He listens to God. And he calls him and his family Saul's servants. He trusts in God and goes out and fights for Saul to accomplish God's purposes. And Jonathan can see this in David. So Jonathan, like David, responds in humility. Jonathan considers David more important than himself. He gives David the rights to his kingdom and throne. Think about that. And we, we know this because later on, Jonathan tells David, my father Saul is not going to be king but you will be king and I will serve alongside you. The crown prince to an entire nation looks at a man at least 10 years younger than him, a boy, and says, you're going to be king and I'm going to serve under you. That's incredible humility. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but out of humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. And this sounds great, right? But what does this mean for us? Right? After all, we are not kings or queens, regardless of what your comments on Instagram might say. I don't know if people still say that. Uh, we're not fighting battles, slaying giants, giving away kingdoms, that, at least to my knowledge. Uh, so for young professionals, the question really is, do you see other people as more important than yourself? When you're at the office, do you see other people's time, their work, their position, their personal lives as less important than yours? Would you use other people for your own gain? If you're wondering what this looks like, here's an example. When you listen to someone, are you listening because you're interested in their life? Or are you interested in waiting so that you can talk more about yourself? Do you just want them to listen to you? Would you inconvenience someone to make your life more convenient? Are you primarily absorbed with your thoughts, your opinions, your concerns? Or are you more concerned with the things of God and the concerns of other people? What fills your mind throughout the day? Do you cling to the rights that you think you deserve? Or are you willing to lay them down because you treat other people as more important? When I was in Mexico two weeks ago, uh, we got to serve alongside Pastor Salvador and Jackie. That's a picture of them. Uh, Salvador and Jackie, they were real estate agents in Ensenada, Mexico, which is in Baja, California. And they were pretty successful, actually, at it too. 
but they looked around their community and they saw a lack of godly churches. In fact, many of the churches there have so many power struggles that people are literally splitting the churches just because they want to be in charge. So there's a distinct lack of humility and humble servant-hearted leadership. And they felt that God was calling them to do something about it. So they went out and they planted a church, and this church runs about 10 people. So a very humble, very small church. And when we were down there, we got to do a cookout for them, and we invited people from their neighborhood, and they had 50 people show up to this cookout. They were overjoyed. They were so excited. And they got to talk with these people, and they got to invite them to church, and they got to build relationships that later they'll be able to share Jesus on top of that trust of that relationship. And they were thrilled and ecstatic because of this. And so afterwards, we were sitting in the sanctuary of the church, and they were so thankful that Salvador and Jackie come out. And you have to remember, it's late. We're really sweaty. We have just been working hard all day. And they come out with a bowl of water and a towel. And they get down and they wash the feet of my team and I. And it is exactly as humble as it sounds. For those of you who don't know, this is exactly what Jesus did in in John 13. In those days and today, foot washing is not something that you ask someone else to do. You would never ask someone to wash your feet. That's such an act of humility. And even in, in Jesus' day, that's something that you couldn't even ask but the lowest of slaves to do. But what does Jesus do? He gets up from dinner. He takes off his robe, he ties a towel around his waist, and he gets down and he washes the dirty, grimy feet of his disciples. God himself washes dirt off of the feet of the people who are following him. He even washes feet off of, or washes the feet of Judas, who is going to betray him later that night. And if you look at this and you think, man, that kind of makes me uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable too. Right? It's, it's hard to accept that kind of humility. Why? Because radical displays of humility are always going to be countercultural. Radical displays of humility are never going to be what the world says to do to get ahead in life. It's always going to tell you in some subtle way, whether it's conscious or subconsciously, hey, you just need to put yourself ahead. Hey, you need to take care of yourself first. Hey, you need to make sure that you get what's yours. And what Jesus says is get down and wash each other's feet as I have done for you. Humility always does this. See, pride is so concerned with me and my rights and my wants and my concerns. Our minds can be filled with when do I get my promotion? When do I get my raise? When do I get my relationship? My new house, my new car, my recognition, my respect. And these things are not necessarily bad, but how do they compare with the concerns and needs of other people around us? Are we primarily concerned with other people and getting them to the place that we think God wants them to be? Or are we primarily concerned with getting what we think we deserve? It's a radical way to think about the world. And do we do that? That's the real question. Do we live like this? Because Saul certainly doesn't. And it actually leads to greater pride His pride expands. Look with me at 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. Think chief's parade times like 100. All the cities are celebrating, not just the best one. 
Can't say that and talk about humility, can I? And the women sang to one another, and they celebrated. Saul has has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me only thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Do you guys see what's starting to happen here? Saul's ego gets bruised. What started out as mere indifference towards the people around him, it starts turning into anger and arrogance and insecurity. He starts thinking, man, David's coming for me. I need to be careful about this guy. They're saying he killed more people than me. They're saying he's a better warrior than me. I think he might want to take over. Hang on, though. Who actually went out and killed Goliath? It was David. Later on, Saul sends David out with the men to pursue the Philistines. Saul has not even done his job. And he's upset that David is getting credit for what David has actually done. And after that, we begin to see his pride has blinded him to the truth because he's self-focused. Point number two tonight, pride is self-focused. Humility is self-forgetful. Pride is all about putting the spotlight on me. Right? And it can go one of two ways. It can look over here like arrogance, right? Like I'm just going to kind of puff myself up. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make myself look good. I'm going to kind of showboat a little bit. But it can also look like putting ourselves in the spotlight of insecurity, putting our minds always on ourselves. What does everyone think about me? Oh, how am I being perceived right now? I wonder if anyone notices this about me. What, what are they, what, what's, what's going on? And we think everyone's watching us. We think we're in the spotlight even if we don't want it. And it's a form of pride. And you see, that's what Saul is doing here. He puts himself in the spotlight of insecurity. He's way too concerned about what other people are saying about him because he's seeking praise for himself when he's not getting it. And we don't even see what David thinks about himself, right? Like we don't, we don't see David saying anything or being concerned about this. In fact, later in this chapter, we're not going to get to it tonight, but King Saul wants to have David marry his daughter so David gets distracted when he's in love and dies in battle, which is all kinds of messed up in-law dynamics there. That's not what you want. But David says when Saul wants him to marry his daughter, I don't have a reputation to marry your daughter. I'm not anyone special. No reputation? David, man, the ladies have been singing about you, killing tens of thousands of people. Like they have been singing your praises coming out of the streets. You are the mightiest warrior in all of Israel. But David doesn't see any of that because he's self-forgetful. So we have to ask ourselves the question, where is David's praise going? Psalm 8, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 63, 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, my King. I praise your name forever and ever. Psalm 27 of David, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that which I will seek over, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. David's praise goes straight to the only one who deserves it. 
He's so consumed with God's glory. You begin to realize, if you read the Psalms, David doesn't take any credit for himself. Any of his strength, any of his battle prowess, any of his successes, he says, God has been the one who delivered me. God is my strength. God is my shield. God is my stronghold. I take no credit for myself. And you find out David's not really that interested in himself at all at this point. He's much more concerned with God and God's people praising God than building a reputation for himself. He wants to put God in the spotlight. Who do we want the spotlight to be on in our lives? Are we more concerned with the person in front of us when we're talking to them? Are we more concerned with God or would you rather have everyone focus on you? How do you feel when other people are praised? Do you want attention from other people to make yourself feel validated? On the other end, do you feel like everyone's shining a spotlight on you and everyone's aware of every little thing about your life? Because both of these examples are pride. It's self-consumption. It's self-absorption. Self-focus. Tim Keller, who's a pastor who recently passed away, he wrote uh, wrote a great little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's up there on the screen. It's only 45 pages. You can find a PDF online. You can buy it. Um, Very easy read. It is probably in the top 10 most formative books in my faith that I have ever read outside of the Bible. And in it, Tim Keller says this, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. And you see the distinct lack of this in Saul's life. Right? He's unable to celebrate what God has done through David. He's unable to celebrate with his people in a time of great rejoicing. He's even unable to take some of the compliments that they gave him. They did ascribe to him thousands of kills. But he's so self-absorbed, he can't accept any of that. At work, how do you do when your coworkers' praises are sung over yours? When we're in public, when we come to the block, are we trying to draw attention to ourselves by how we look? How funny we are, how smart we are, how much we know about Jesus, maybe. And and the reason why we do these things so often, and I've been here, this is something that routinely I have to check in myself and I have to routinely put it to death in my life. It's always something that is going to be a battle. And the reason we do this is because we want to be noticed, right? We want to be valued. Like we we want to get recognition. We, We don't want to be overly critiqued. We want to connect with people. We want to make friends. We want to make romances. We want to, we want to have a good time. Right? We, we want all of these things. And pretty much every voice in the world says that self-love or self-worship or self is the way to get this. You need to be concerned about getting the things that you need in your life because no one else will look out for you, which is in direct violation to what God's word says. 
And what do we do, right? Because if we think that that's the way to do it, we're going to draw attention to ourselves all the time. Like, I'm going to do anything I can do to get myself in this spotlight so that people will know me and pay attention to me. Or I'm going to be incredibly paralyzed by everyone's thoughts and opinions because I care what everyone, and I need to be accepted. And the spotlight is on us. But there's freedom from this. There's freedom from arrogance, and there's freedom from insecurity. David shows it this way. He focuses on God and on other people. And you're asking, why does this work? It's because there is freedom in self-forgetfulness. It's true. If we learn to have humility and understanding that God loves you, God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin, God says that you have value because he says that you have value. God says if you are a follower of Jesus, he is going to equip you to go out and relate to other people. He's going to give you favor in the sight of other people when you need it. You begin to realize, man, this whole thing's about God and it's not even about me at all. And then you kind of step out of the spotlight and the lights burn a little less hot and you're able to look around and you're not blinded by pride. And you begin to be able to relate to people a little bit more. And you get out of your own head or you be able to listen to other people. And people love when you ask them questions about themselves and you genuinely listen and you genuinely care. And then you begin to make connections with people and you begin to, begin to care. And then people value you, not because you're drawing attention to yourself, but because you're loving them as Christ would love them. And you begin to be free from arrogance and free from insecurity. And we begin to celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives, that we all love that friend who genuinely rejoices with us, with us when something happens. Right? They're genuinely happy for us. We love that friend. And for the self-absorbed or incredibly insecure person, this will set you both free from both extremes. Because it's not about us. It's about God. Here's the deal, though. If we don't do this, we will not only experience the freedom of self-forgetfulness, but you will continue to be a slave to pride. You will continue to be a slave to your own opinions of yourself or the opinions of everyone else around you. And this does not end well for anyone. And we're going to see this in Saul's life. Continue with me in 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 through 12. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. This is a sobering passage. To tell you all the truth, I, I wrestled with this. I've been wrestling with this. Why would a loving God send a harmful spirit to Saul's life to torment him? Is what the Bible says. So much so that Saul would attempt to take David's life while David is serving this man. Why would God do this? And I think the Bible only gives one answer that we can find, and it's point number three tonight. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is actually a direct quotation of Proverbs 3.34 and 1 Peter 5.5. God will not allow Saul to continue to succeed because of his pride. And, and this is actually a very loving thing for God to do, that Saul is being slowly removed by God from power. 
Because what happens when you give a man who's entirely absorbed with his own self absolute authority as the king? What happens when you give that man power? What happens when you give a man power who doesn't care about other people, who only seeks to use them, who only gets angry when other people are recognized? People get used, people get abused, people get hurt, and people die. And none of it goes to the glory of God. And so we begin to see Saul is a man who just uses people. Saul is a man who has anger issues. Saul is jealous. Saul is possessive. Saul is insecure. And so if God allows Saul to continue on in this role for the long haul, Saul will only continue to use people, hurt people, and make life all about Saul, and he will ruin the nation of Israel. And so it's actually an incredibly gracious and loving thing that God would oppose prideful people. And God starts to tear Saul down and build David up. We see this as it continues. Verse 13, so Saul removed him from his presence and made David a commander of thousands. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. Grace to the humble. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and David or, and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. God is taking this humble shepherd boy, and he's beginning to give him favor in the eyes of the people. And he's beginning to remove Saul and make people question. You see later that people don't even like Saul that much. They're like, man, this man's lost his mind. We should not be following this guy. But God gives grace to David, and he allows him to succeed, and he allows him to continue. Why? Because he knows that David is going to turn the hearts of the people to the one that David praises. Because David has made a track record of saying, God, this is not about me. I'm going to point the spotlight right back on you. I'm going to reflect any praise and glory that I get directly to God. And that's the kind of man that God can trust. A man or a woman that's focused on how do I give God glory in this situation? How do I love people? How do I encourage other people? How do I be a blessing instead of a curse? How do I give instead of take? That's the kind of person that God can use. And Saul, he's only going to fear man. He fears David, while David fears God. Saul views man as more important than God. And if you remember anything from week one when we talked about idolatry, very dangerous things happen when you replace God with an idol, and especially the idol of self. We do not make good gods. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does this mean for us? Uh, We just need to recognize that there are consequences for pride. We need to very seriously consider this. That we might succeed for a while if we make life about ourselves. But in the long run, we need to understand God is not going to bless someone who's prideful. Otherwise, they're going to continue to hurt and use and belittle others. And so in our lives, we need to recognize, man, if I want this position at work, man, if I want this relationship, man, if I want this, these friendships, if they're going to be all about you, you're going to end up using those people. You're going to end up hurting people. And it might succeed in the short term, but God will not allow people he cares about to be hurt in the long term. He's a good God. He's a loving father. He's protective. And he protects people by opposing the proud. 
But if you find someone who's self-forgetful, you find someone who wants to love and bless and serve others, that's a man or woman that God can use for his glory. And I'm not going to pretend to sit here and try to diagnose if God is opposing you or giving you grace. I'm not going to point out situations that might be happening in your life that could be an example of God opposing you or God giving grace to you. It's not for me to know. I don't really know that that's for anyone to know. God's word says that because of sin, we are going to have hardship in this life. If you are a follower of Jesus or not, you will have hardship. But we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, is this hardship in my life because God is opposing me because of my pride, like Saul? Or is this hardship in my life because God is developing me in humility like David? And we have to take an honest look at our lives and ask the Holy Spirit, teach us. We have to ask, we have to go to God's word and say, God, is this me? Am I prideful in any of these areas? And we want to diagnose, is this going on so that we can do something about it? There's a couple questions for us to diagnose if we're prideful or humble. Question number one, am I more concerned with myself or with God or others? Am I okay when other people are celebrated or am I jealous and angry at the lack of recognition? Can I take advice or feedback from other people? Is it okay if someone tries to teach me something that I already know? Do I ask questions out of sincerity or are they fake? How do I view myself in comparison to God? Here's the deal. When we compare ourselves against a holy, all-powerful, loving God, the only correct option is humility. I was talking with a friend on Tuesday, and he said this about humility. He realized this. He said, being humble does not get you extra credit. Like, being humble is the correct response. It's not exceeding expectations. It's the meeting of expectations. It's the correct way we should see ourselves when we look at ourselves in light of God. We shouldn't look at humility thinking, man, that's such a great thing. Like, that's, that's such a, a cherry on top. That's such a great character trait. We should say, man, we should all just be humble. Like, we should just not be concerned with ourselves. And humility, it looks like trusting God. Think about this. David went back into Saul's service after having a spear thrown at him twice. Twice. Two times. Toxic work environment. Rule number one right there. Saul is not a great boss. That's not, it's not the benefits that David's going back to work for this guy. He does it because he respects God. He does it because he trusts God. Let me ask you this. How hard is it to hit someone with a spear who's playing guitar? Don't answer that. I don't know. But God allowed David to evade him. God gave him success. David trusts God. And he forgives Saul. Last week, Grant talked about forgiveness. Humility looks a lot like forgiveness. A lot like telling God, God, I believe that you are going to make this right one day, and I'm willing to let you be judge, and I'm just going to let it go. And then as you begin to live a humble life, you begin to experience God's grace and God's blessing. And you begin to experience the freedom that comes when you serve other people. The joy of building deep friendships because you are investing in their lives. The joy of making meaningful connections when you share about your faith with other people because you're not concerned about your reputation. Because you're not concerned about what they think about you, but you care about them. And you love them and there's sincerity and there's genuineness. And there's freedom there. 
and you begin to experience God's grace in your life. Jesus promises the only way to find true life is to lay your life down. And you experience the grace of the freedom of self-forgetfulness. When you enter a room of people, you're free from thinking, what does everyone think about me? Or how do I draw attention to these things about myself? You just get to think, man, how can I point people towards God? How can I love someone today? How can I build someone else up? And it's fun. As someone who, I would say, has lived times of my life in extreme pride, and as someone who has been humbled, I would say that Always the times in my life that are more enjoyable are the times where I'm focusing on God and on other people. Because life's just not that great when it's lived for us. I'm just not that great. None of us, no offense, we're not that cool. We're not that important. God loves you all very dearly. But none of us are God. None of us created the heavens and the earth. None of us are keeping track of all the living creatures and giving them breath. None of us are actively working to facilitate the good of every person on the planet. That only belongs to God. It only ever belongs to God. And most importantly, you get the grace of not being blinded by pride, so you get to see the glory of God. You get to see the glory of the God that's good. You get to see how beautiful he is, like David said, to gaze upon the Lord's beauty. That's the freedom that comes with humility. 1 Peter 5, 5-7 tells us, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We are called to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another and under God's hand. Humility is a choice. It's a choice that we get to choose every single morning. Just like we choose our outfits, we get to choose, I'm going to be humble today. I'm going to focus on other people. We get to take confidence that God is mighty. God is just. God will reward your humility one day. It might not be soon, but he will reward it. Finally, we get to... In humility, give God our fears and confidence because we know that he cares about us. Can you imagine that? A life free from arrogance. A life free from insecurity. A life free from concerns or anxieties. Because you know, man, God, you're going to take care of it. God, I trust you. God, I don't need to have the answers. I don't need to solve all my own problems because I serve you and you are a powerful God. There's freedom there. It's a burden being lifted off ourselves. And we humble ourselves in response when we see that this is who God is. And we've talked a lot of different ways tonight that we can see humility versus pride. And we've seen the example of David and Saul. As we close, the band is going to come out. Um, But the biggest test of humility is this. This right here. Have you repented of your sin and decided to follow Jesus? As much as we talk about David's humility tonight, David was not a perfect man. In fact, both Saul and David end up using people while they're kings. Both Saul and David end up in fits of rage. Both Saul and David try to have people murdered by their enemies. David actually succeeds. Both Saul and David are liars. David even commits adultery and steals another man's wife. 
David fails multiple times as a father and as a king. You begin to get the picture. David is not a good dude. And so what's this difference between Saul and David? What's the difference that God would reject Saul but give grace to this man who was an adulterer, a murderer, and a liar? After every single time, after every single one of David's failures, God chooses to forgive him and restore him and calls David a man after his own heart. And the difference between Saul and David was that David had a heart that was humble towards God and he repented of his sin and he routinely committed himself to following the future king that would come, and that's Jesus Christ. See, the mark of a true Christian, to quote a hero of mine, it's not perfection, it's repentance. It's having the humility to say, God, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you in grievous ways. I'm not a good person. I can't do anything to make myself better. There's nothing I can do to earn my way to you. I need your forgiveness. And when you get to that point in your life where you realize that that's the case, that level of humility, then you begin to see Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Jesus humbled himself so that you could find freedom from sin, Satan, and death. And you begin to accept his death for you. And all you have to do is humble yourself before him. And you willingly bend the knee and say, Jesus, I'm going to serve you as my king. I'm going to strip myself of making my own decisions, my own rights. Anything that you want, I'm going to give it to you. Because you love me and you deserve it. And I need you to save me. And you commit to following him with your life, not perfectly, but humbly. And you experience the greatest gift of grace that you could ever have. And so we're going to pray, and I want to invite you, if you have not yet made that decision to follow Jesus, would you make that decision today? We're going to stand and we're going to sing, but I would just encourage you, sit and pray. Don't be concerned about what other people are doing. Don't be concerned about what other people are going to think about you. All that matters is that God is calling you to himself. Commit yourself to following God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us that you are a loving Father, and God, you tell us in your word that we are sinners that deserve death. God, I am a sinner that deserves death. I've never done anything good, God, apart from you. And God, I just ask, would everyone in the room tonight who's a follower of you, God, would we just continue to live lives that are free from the idol of self? Would we continue to be self-forgetful and to love other people and to focus on you and your glory? God, help us to clothe ourselves with humility every day. We need your help in that. And God, for the man or woman in the room tonight who does not know you, God, I pray, would you help them to see their sin? God, help them to see that without it, you are opposing them because of the ultimate form of pride of rejecting your son. And God, would they see that there's freedom in your son, that there's freedom from sin, there's freedom from reputation. God, there's freedom from having to make all their own decisions. And it's found in accepting your death and your new life on the cross for them. You're a good God, and we come before you to sing humbly for your praise and your glory. Amen.